0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be chatting about the Notre Dame Cathedral. Such a terribly sad story. We're going to explain, at least have someone explain to us the significance, why this matters so much, beyond just being a beautiful church. This is a much more significant building to those in France than just that. We're also going to be chatting about movies, gate receipts, way down this year. What is going on? Are the movies just crappy? Or is there something else happening? And then Don Robertson stops in. We're going to be talking about some of the things that happened in the world of sports over the weekend. You may have noticed there were a few. Lots
1: to talk about all coming up. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
0: If you have had a radio on, a TV on, anything, if you've been around anywhere uh, today, you have surely heard by now about what is going on in Paris. Notre Dame Cathedral. I could probably say that with a French accent to make it more authentic, but I will not. Uh, Notre Dame Cathedral is burning down. It is a real unbelievable scene. And here's the thing. Um, to those who love culture or architecture or art or history, this is a tragic loss. And I rarely, I, I'm always loath to apply the word tragedy to something that isn't about the loss of life, but I think this may be one time when that word may be appropriate or warranted based on the history of this place, based on the meaning of this place, based on the symbolism, the significance, all those kind of things. We're talking about one of the most beautiful buildings on the planet with a history that goes back to the 1100s. It's a stunning loss today. I want to bring in my first guest to talk about this. Dr. David Bell is a historian of early modern France. He uh, has a particular interest in the political culture of the old regime and the French Revolution uh, at Princeton University. He joins us now. Dr. Bell, thanks for doing this today. Sure. Uh, This, as a French historian, I'm assuming uh, that brings with it a passion for France. So when you see images like this today, what goes through your mind?
2: (laughs) Well, it's just heartbreaking, of course. It's uh, I mean, this is anybody. I mean, who, who has spent time in France, has lived in in Paris, as I have. I mean, this is one of the great landmarks. You, one of the great buildings. You walk by it all the time. It's visible from everywhere. Uh, it's it's exactly at the geographical center of Paris, and in the central island in the Seine River. Uh, so so it's, it's you know it's, it, the French would use the word inconformable, I mean, you just can't you can't you can't uh, walk in the city without without you know passing by it at some point and. Uh, and it is, as you said, incredibly beautiful and, and historically meaningful, so it's just just heartbreaking.
0: I, I don't know that you can whittle it down uh, to a simple answer, but why in the in the minds and the hearts of Parisians and, and of French people, why is it so significant? What what makes this besides the fact that it's in the center and it's been around forever, why is it such a significant building for them?
2: Well, I think two reasons. One is simply that it is one of the, the largest and most beautiful Gothic cathedrals anywhere. Uh, it's one that they therefore take great pride in. But again, it is right at the center of Paris. I mean, if you look at the, the way the French measure distance, uh, everywhere in the country they will say this is, you know, a certain number of kilometers from Paris. And when they say that, the spot that they measure to is right in front of the, of the cathedral. Hmm. Uh, there's actually literally, you can walk by and you can see on the ground where they say this is where all the measurements go from. So that's about as... as uh, expressive, as you could imagine, for sort of French identity. And uh, beyond that, it has been a uh, center of so many different historical occasions for them. It's been where several kings were, were crowned king. Napoleon Bonaparte crowned himself emperor there. Uh, when Charles de Gaulle came back to Paris in 1944, after the end of the German occupation, and gave one of his great speeches, he did so you know right in front of Notre Dame Cathedral. Uh, it's it's a, it's just an extraordinary extraordinarily meaningful place for any for anybody who knows France.
0: I mean, it actually sounds as though if there has been a massive moment in French history, it's probably been there, or very likely that part of it has been there.
2: Well, exactly. I mean, certainly large numbers of them have taken have taken have taken part right there. Uh, absolutely. I mean, in the French Revolution, when people were. We're, were were taken off uh, to the guillotine. They they were often in prison right right next to Notre Dame, and then were taken out and driven right past the cathedral on their way to execution. Uh, during the French Revolution, uh, the uh, the atheists who were briefly uh, in charge actually deconsecrated it, turned it into a temple of reason. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's it's so connected to every part of French history. It's just it's, just, it's incredible that way.
0: i in no may, way mean to make light, but I think for a fair number of people, the one thing that they would know the name by is the Hunchback of Notre Dame. It, it, this is a silly question, perhaps, but is that a true story? Is it based on anything that is in real life, or is it entirely a fictional account?
2: It's a fictional account, but it's also a fictional account in one of the most famous French novel by the single most famous French author of all time, Victor Hugo, who wrote the novel, which in French is just called Notre Dame of Paris. Uh, we translated it as The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He published it in 1831. And again, I mean, that, that book did an amazing amount to add to the allure, to the, to the, to the, to the sort of the myths around the cathedral. Uh, so... Uh, um, and it was also, and it's also a book which contains absolutely marvelous, wonderful descriptions of the cathedral. So while it is fictional, it's still uh, it's still really, really important.
0: What is inside the church? I, I mean, it's a church, so there are pews and all those kind of things. but it, is it a place that is filled with art treasures, or is it really a just a beautiful church?
2: Well, it's filled with art treasures. Some of I mean, some of them were actually just, I mean some of them were destroyed actually during the French Revolution. Uh, the church was actually stripped of a lot of its art, uh, but there are still precious works of art, apparently most of which seem to have been saved, artworks and relics, although perhaps not, we don't know yet, the stained glass. Mm. Uh, I, I'm very worried about that. A lot of the stained glass is kept, is kept in place by lead, which has a very low melting
0: point, point. Yes, uh,
2: 630 degrees, as I looked up this afternoon.
0: Yeah, and, and I hate to say so, this, because I just read a report before we came on that at least three of them apparently have uh, not survived and they were unbelievably gorgeous stained glass, enormous stained glass windows.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Continuing our conversation with Dr. David Bell from Princeton University is a professor of, uh, French history, modern France, early France. I are talking about Notre Dame Cathedral burning down today. Ter- terrible, terrible, terrible thing. If you are interested in history, if you are interested in architecture, I mean so many areas where this would cover. And doctor, would it be a fair comparison in some ways to compare this at all to Westminster Abbey? And not, not obviously architecturally, but in meaning and, and symbol- symbolism and those kind of things?
2: Oh sure, absolutely. I mean it has very much a kind of comparable place in in the French imagination in the French mind as as Westminster has in, in the British absolutely
0: now that said and the reason part of the reason I asked that is Westminster Abbey we know is also the burial ground there are many uh, I believe popes I'm not even sure who all it is kings uh, that are buried at Westminster Abbey are there bodies buried at Notre Dame
2: uh there are there are a few but no it's it, there's nothing comparable to 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 the uh, to, to that in Notre Dame. So that is, that is a difference.
0: What will, now we've seen pictures today, very moving pictures of people, uh, standing outside watching the fire burn, singing Ave Maria. What is going to be the, do you think across France, the, the feeling, the sentiment, whatever tonight, tomorrow, when they realize what's, what's happened?
2: Well, I think just very much a feeling of, of sort of loss of grief, of, uh, of sadness, uh, I mean, obviously, they also we'll have to wait and see what what the investigation shows as mm. to why this happened. Uh, conceivably, there there could be some anger that will follow, depending on what the investigation shows. How? Uh, but for the moment, I just imagine just 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 grief. But the president has already uh, said that they will that they will, of course, rebuild. Mm. And I think one thing to understand also is that Notre Dame, while while it was started 850 years ago, it has been rebuilt many times. I mean, it has been. The Notre Dame that, that, that people saw yesterday, if they traveled to Paris, was nothing like what it looked like, say, two, two three hundred years ago. It was extensively rebuilt in the 19th century. Even a lot of the stained glass was rebuilt and redone. Uh, the spire that collapsed was built in the 19th century. It's not a medieval spire. Mm. Uh, and they, they seem to say now that, I mean, at least the last reports I saw, said that the, that the structure itself has largely survived. And if that's the case, then it can probably be re- rebuilt very successfully. Chartres Cathedral, uh, which is uh, another one of the great famous French cathedrals, had a massive fire in the early 19th century, I think in 1834, and was rebuilt and, and is still in the beautiful, incredible place that people can go see today. So, so while it is incredibly sad and and, and horrific, I, I do think that they can they can rebuild it.
0: I mean, it would cost a fortune. I would think. I mean, it, they have to do it from how you describe and what it means to them. But it is going to cost a fortune. It
2: certainly will. I think the, from what I saw, I was looking at a story just when before the interview, and it looked like the president of France was actually calling on people to to make voluntary contributions as well. Wow. wow. How? When I yes, look, certainly it will certainly cost an incredible amount. On the other hand, when you think about it, there was a beautiful cathedral in Dresden that was destroyed. During World War II, completely destroyed. I saw it in 1985, and it was still a pile of rubble. Um, so, um, and now it has been completely, completely restored.
0: When I look so at a building, when I look at a building like this, though, what always strikes me, and, and I don't know if this resonates with you, but so long ago, it was built in the 1100s, 1200s. It just always makes me wonder how they did it. In our modern times, we'll have a hard time rebuilding this. And you think back that long ago, and they were able to put something like this together. I'm stunned by how they did it.
2: It's, it, it's incredible. I mean, when you think about the fact that they built something that tall uh, with those huge, heavy blocks of stone uh, without, without, uh, without, with, and only had for power their own muscles and the muscles of animals to pull on pulleys, uh, is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, that they didn't have cranes, they didn't have, you know, they had to do it all with wooden scaffolding. I mean, it's just extraordinary. But it took them a very long
0: time. Yes, to do it did. Do you know why, <laughs> it, took why it was built? Years to complete. Do you know why they decided to build it at that back then? Was there was there an, an impetus, or was there some particular reason other than just building a beautiful church?
2: Uh, it was a it, it was a period. Uh, I mean, there were many many reasons, um, and it depends on on your perspective. Certainly, the major reason was to 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 express uh, to, to to you know to you know for the greater glory of God. But, but of course. There were also competitions, in effect, between cities to have the largest and most beautiful of these cathedrals. There was—they uh, wanted to do it to show the power and glory of the Roman Catholic Church. They wanted to do it to show the glory and power of the, of the French monarchy, which was in Paris. Uh, so they—I mean, many, many reasons. Some of them, some of them, very, very disinterested. Others, perhaps a little more interested, but but an entirely human and understandable.
0: Dr. David Bell from Princeton University. He is a professor in early modern France. Uh, really appreciate the time, especially today. Thank you so much for taking a few minutes.
2: Well, thank you very much. You take
0: care. That is, uh, boy, it is it is a sad story. And again, as I said off the top, I am very loath to throw the word tragedy around if it doesn't involve people dying. I think we, it's like heroic or you know or whatever. It, there are certain words that get used way too much. And that then they get diminished because we overuse them. I think though that in this case, I think tragedy is legitimate. I really do. I think this is one of those rare times when non-loss of life, as far as we know, non-loss of life can probably be applied to this because this is truly one of the world's great architectural feats, as he just explained, how they you know, did this all those years ago. And to make it what it was, boy, it is a sad, sad story. And hopefully they can have enough around and enough r- remaining that they can rebuild this.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: A little bit of breaking news for those of you who are who have been waiting to hear what's happening today. The NHL has announced its suspension of Nazem Kadri. He is out for the rest of the Boston Bruins series, however long that series lasts. So there is your... There's your answer. So you will not be playing tonight or any other night as long as the Bruins and the Leafs are still going at it. Uh, We'll have more sports stuff coming up next hour. First, though, there was a report out today in the Hollywood Reporter, which is the trade magazine, kind of, for all folks who are following along with the world of movies and entertainment and that kind of thing. Box office numbers are down this year. Way down. Way down. Way down, lowest point in six years, according to The Hollywood Reporter. Now, to be clear, Hollywood has still brought in $2.75 billion in box office receipts so far in 2019, so we're not having macaroni and cheese for the folks doing Hollywood yet. However, that first four months of the year is 17% down from last year, 18% from 2017. Question is... Why? Is it just bad movies or is something else going on? Let me bring in Dr. Scott Henderson. We always love having him on here as a Brock University professor who teaches pop culture, popular cinema, and film theory. Dr. Henderson, thanks for doing this today.
3: Oh, pleasure, Scott.
0: Should Hollywood be concerned when they see numbers like this?
3: I don't think so. I think there's a lot of factors going on. I mean, you know, you, you, you hit one on the head, and that's the poor films, right? We've We've had some real duds so far, you know. <laughs> I mean, Dumbo landed with a real thud. Which Alex shocked God. me.
0: Which shocked oh, me. Because I, I thought that was a sure money in the bank kind of thing. You put out Dumbo, a remix of Dumbo. Everybody loves Dumbo. How does that not work?
3: And everybody seems to love Tim Burton. And yet got the two together. And it just didn't work. And, you know, there's been some hits still. I mean, Us, the Jordan Peele film, has done really well. You've had Captain Marvel and Shazam, which boosted things a little. But, you know, there's been no Black Panther, which... In retrospect, I think, you know, why did the studios put a blockbuster like Black Panther in what is kind of the quietest time of year, which is usually those first few months? Maybe they didn't expect it to do so well. So I think, you know, you're you're comparing to some unfair numbers from last year a little bit. And looking ahead for this year, there are some huge films coming. right? We've got another Avengers. We've got a Toy Story, a new Star Wars. I mean, there's I think a lot of people waiting for these big ones to come out.
0: Well, and I would argue that perhaps that uh, whatever money is down the 17%, they're going to make it all back perhaps when Lion King, the new remake of Lion King comes out and it makes like a hundred billion dollars in the first eight minutes because everybody who is now of the age that they are having young kids all grew up watching the Lion King and I'm guessing every one of them is going to be taking their kids to the theater.
3: Absolutely. So th- there's a lot in the pipeline this year and you know what the the other factor we've had some terrible weather, <laughs> not just us. Like you look across North America and you've had bomb cyclones. You've had, you know, <laughs> you know storm after storm and this winter that won't end. So, you know, factor all those things together. And I can see that's a big contribution to that drop.
0: You don't think people like going out in blizzards? Strangely, no. <laughs> I mean,
3: guaranteed a good seat in the theater if you make that's
0: it. That's true. Yes, that's... well here's the thing, you mentioned a couple of them. I mentioned Lion King, you mentioned a couple others. Every single one of the movies that either you mentioned or I mentioned is either a remake or a sequel. That's, that's, there's got to be something to that.
3: I think it's a big part of Hollywood now. You, really, you have a gulf opening up. You've got, I think, the smart screenwriting, script writing is now moving towards series that are on streaming because you've got time to flesh out characters and have complex storylines. What's going to pull people in the theaters is loud, is action-packed, you know, spectacle. And, you know, the familiar is also going to help, you know, get people in for characters they know, storylines they know they will enjoy, and give them that big screen experience. And you've really got kind of two competing and distinct areas now with, you know, live, I guess called live cinema, you know, cinema at cinema person and cinema at home.
0: I want to get into that after the break, but just before we go to the break, you just raised something that shocks me a little bit. And that is, it has always been assumed, it's always been the position, I think, that if you are a star, you want to get off of TV and go into the movies. The big stars do movies, the secondary stars do television. And what you just said, I think, is that with streaming now and a chance to flesh out the characters, while the big stars, the acting stars, may still be on the big screen, are the writers actually moving away from the movies to the longer format streaming things?
3: Oh, I think for sure. That's, that's where the good writing, solid writing is. I, I think, you know, cinema is, is changing to, you know, much more spectacle, which strangely it was in its earliest days. People went to see short films with, you know, a lot of movement, things falling down, things blowing up. You know, that's always been part of the cinematic attraction, but I think the good writing is really gravitating towards these stream series, as are a lot of the actors.
0: Well, the, the, put it this way, you're, you're correct. There are certainly actors who are much more willing, it seems, to do those streamed things who are big, big, big name actors. I, I, I just watched on, uh, on Netflix this the other day, I watched The Highwaymen which was with Kevin Costner and Woody Harrelson and a bunch of other people. And you go, wow, those, they would have never done, well, some of them, but they probably would have never done TV 10 or 12 years ago because that was lowbrow. Now it's, now it's okay.
3: Yeah. It's shifting the other way. Though, you know, film is still a great payday, right? For, you know, especially most of it now being CGI, you're probably, you're spending some time in front of a green screen and cashing a pretty good check.
0: That's like, it's like being a professor at Brock.
1: Yeah, exactly how it is. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We are chatting with Dr. Scott Henderson from Brock University. Teaches about pop culture and movies and movie culture and those kind of things. Uh, Hollywood Reporter magazine has said that revenues, gate receipts for movies, way down this year so far. We've talked about whether or not it's just because there are crappy movies that have been out and all the good ones are coming later, maybe the case. But you, and and Dr. Henderson, you also mentioned about weather and other things. Gets me to the point, is the theater going experience um, at risk because of the fact that people can look and say, look, I'll pay my 12 bucks a month for Netflix, I get tons of movies, I can sit at home in my comfortable chairs with my cheap beer and cheap popcorn, or I'm going to go out and spend 50 bucks for a night at the theater. Is it at risk because of the convenience now that we have you
3: know I would on paper think it would be I mean that it makes a lot of sense and yet one stat I saw and I haven't seen a Canadian or US equivalent but for the United Kingdom it was the highest cinema attendance so not box office money because the tickets have gotten expensive the most people since 1970 which kind of that kind of blew my mind I was like wow you know there are still a lot of people going out to the cinema
0: it does seem that there are, and you touched on this one when you said lots of explosions and stuff, there are movies that I think even the most diehard uh, not-movie-goer, so the one who's most happy to stay home, but there are certain movies that you have to see still on the big screen. And I yeah, think people I think, still believe that.
3: Yeah, the, all these superhero franchises, I mean, they they work best on the big screen, they work best with a big audience, and everyone's reacting, and you feel part of this. I mean the the hype for the upcoming Avengers movie. I mean, you know, already ads are running and get your tickets in advance. And, you know, it, it's creating a different atmosphere. You see that films would stay for a long time. right? Mm. You'd, you'd see ads in the paper for Star Wars. And now in its second year in, in the theater, <laughs> and you, think, you know, people were still going. And said, now it's all about going right at that beginning, get that big box office that first couple of weekends, get the big experience, and then, sure, spin it out to the streaming services but, you know, even with bigger TVs, it's not the same as sitting in that theater and just feeling everything
1: shake.
0: Well, I, there, there is a movie that I have wanted to see. I've been dying to see it, but I've decided that I will only see it when I can actually find a theater. That's Free Solo, the one about the guy who climbs without any ropes and stuff that won an Academy Award for Best Documentary. Because it's like that one, I think, loses all of the tension and the magnitude and everything. If you're watching it on even a 45 or 50 inch TV, it's not the same.
3: No, you're not going to feel those big chasms and uh, that danger is just not going to right. be as present. And if, I think that's what's happening is that's that's where the split is going is we're starting to see a lot of films and theaters are just going for you know the big effects and, and make use of the screen size.
0: So is that what Hollywood does? Hollywood obviously always follows the money. So should we expect that this is going to be what happens more and more and more of the films that get produced for the theatres are going to be the ones that are that kind of thing, that it has to be big and the, the dramas and things that we can do, we'll just leave those alone?
3: I, I'd say so. I mean, you know, Oscar season, you still get the dramas. There's, you know, there's still an interest in them and there still are other audiences, you know, so a, a lower budget film that draws in a moderate number of people is still a success. But, you know, I've you know, been studying teaching film now for 35 years and I've never seen anything as prolonged as the kind of superhero genre run we've had. You know, genres have come and gone. You know, Westerns come and go. Sci-fi comes and goes. Gross-out teen comedies come and mm. go. But you know, this superhero thing is going back to the, you know, the early 2000s with that first burst of Spider-Man films that really came out and cemented this, and it's just kept going.
0: Are you surprised? I mean, it sounds like you're surprised. I, I, I'm going to admit that I don't think I've ever seen one. <laughs> I mean, I, there's lots of other genres that I love. I, it's, but if you're talking about kids that are 16 to 35 as people, well, not even kids, that would seem to be right in the wheelhouse, and they're the ones willing to spend the money.
3: Exactly, and that's, that's who's going out. That's that's your audience for a lot of films. I mean, we we run a film series, you know, in conjunction with the Toronto Film Festival for years in St. Catharines through our department. And, you know, There was an older clientele. There was a clientele interested in foreign film and dramas and significant numbers. We could show these, you know, one a week and, you know, get a really good turnout. But, you know, the sustained numbers that will go through for these blockbusters, you know, it's a much younger audience. I think, you know, this is where young people are going. They're going to hang out in cinemas. And, you know, the, the numbers, even though it's slow for the start of the year, overall are showing it.
0: I pulled up today, just before I let you go, I pulled up today the American Film Institute's top 100 of all time was, came out about 10 or 12 years ago, I think they came out with this list. And I was looking at this thinking, now, based on what we're talking about with the what kind of movies the studios are really interested in now because they know they can make money. Let me give you the top 10. Tell me how many of these would get made today. Uh, Citizen Kane, The Godfather, Casablanca, Raging Bull, Singing in the Rain, Gone with the Wind, Lawrence of Arabia, Schindler's List, Vertigo, The Wizard of Oz. Would you think all 10 of those, if they were brought forward today as a script, do you think all of those would get made?
3: I think you might get one or two of those made, depending depending on what genres. If if musicals were, you know, Flavor of the Month, you might get a Singing in the Rain, you might get a Wizard of Oz, but it'd be a very hard sell on something like Citizen Kane.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, uh, Internet Movie Database, they had eight of the ten for the same in their top. The only two that were different, they had Shawshank Redemption and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And I don't know that either of those get made now either.
3: No, and, and Shawshank was it, a slow burner, right? It did not do that well in theaters. It was word of mouth, and people who saw it, loved it, told people to go see it, and it just has slowly risen up that it kind has. of you know, critical acclaim list
0: my two favorite comedies of all time both bombs at the box office slapshot and spinal tap and uh, you know what you would probably never even notice them if at, at the at the theater then but they were out they were at the theater and you could find them and uh, listen it is a it is a fascinating topic we'll see i think you're right though i think that we are going to find that once all these big blockbusters start coming out that we're going to see the numbers go back up uh, dr scott henderson professor at Brock university thanks for the time today appreciate oh, it as always
1: sir. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We bring in Don Robertson of the off-season Dundas Real McCoys and Calm Choice Realty and a few other things around the Dundas area. Thanks for coming in. Scott, thanks for having me. Wearing the property again. of Real McCoys hockey shirt. Yeah, well, Season's never over.
4: Not when you're going to host the Allen Cup in 2020.
0: That's true. How is uh, the construction going of JL Greatmeyer? Will it be ready? Uh, yes. Yes. Barely. <laughs> Barely, just under the wire. Yeah, we're, 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 we're planning to move back in in February. <laughs> That's right. We're coming in the day before, and hopefully it'll...
4: They're going to fire up the ice, though, as soon as they get the building back in their hands, and uh, which I think is a brilliant move, because what they don't want to do, is, since it's been shut down for two years, is find out in late August when they try to fire up the ice machines broken.
0: Is that the so, appropriate vernacular, though, to fire up the ice? It is in this case because it's been such a hot spot there. Got a bunch of things. It was, uh, Don's in here every Monday at this time to chat a little bit of sports. And uh, has there been Slow weekend, a eh? more eventful weekend in a long, long time? I can't think of one. I don't think There may so. have been weekends where there was as much stuff going on. I well, can't think of as many newsworthy things. Well, like.
4: every weekend uh, of the Masters there is NBA and NHL playoffs. Yep not often is the significance as important
0: because we have two Toronto teams in well and because of news stuff that's happening and what happened at the masters and everything else well let's start at the masters i don't want to spend a ton of time because i know that scott thompson covered this very well today and bill kelly's covered this very well today and people are probably um beginning to experience tiger woods fatigue already But I want to go there because this is something that uh, that dawned on me yesterday as I was watching this. The love-in for Tiger Woods, which I understand, all right, his comeback story from all the injuries and stuff, I get it. He's 42 now, something like that. It's a 43, okay. But as I'm listening to all this, Dawn, I couldn't help but think, you know, many, much of Tiger Woods, the thing that he's coming back from that they're making such a big fuss about was self-inflicted moral character wounds and it was as if oh we've just forgotten all about that now tigers now great tiger again we're going to forget about all the other stuff that he ever did look his comeback was amazing I get it the winning the masters was a tremendous story it created all kinds of excitement but I don't know I, I, I found it hard to have that overwhelming sense of cheering for the guy just because remembering what he did to his wife and remembering all the other stuff that was going on well He's not the first athlete in the world to have that happen. Um,
4: And I think the biggest difference between um, Tiger now and the old Tiger was he always had that, you know, playoff look on his face. He never smiled. He wasn't humanized. And going through, um, you know, sleeping with a girl at Denny's to his wife smashing his truck up with a golf club and missing him likely – and all the things, you're right, that were self inflicted. But he was kind of a villain. And I thought about it today with the off chance that we might talk about it tonight. And his story kind of reminds me of wrestling. Where you're at you're almost despised you're and everybody's heel. sick and tired of watching you win. You're a grumpy SOB. You know you're not fun to be around, and then since he's come back, and last year I forget the name of the tournament. It was oh, well, it was the FedEx Championship. He won the tournament, I believe, but didn't win the FedEx Championship because somebody had a few points more, which seemed almost impossible. And to walk up the 18th with all the people behind him, and the fun he's having golfing now, and you know he'll smile, he'll chat with people. He's very humble. And I think people like that. They, they say, you know what, he's been knocked off his perch, good for him, and you can kind of cheer for him like everybody would cheer for Hulk Hogan until they made him a heel. And I think, you know, and, and it's pretty hard to hate a guy who walks off the green and gives his son a hug.
0: I, look, I, I, I don't want to, I, I don't hate the guy. He didn't
4: do I, any of that before, Scott, so he was easy to start yeah, hating.
0: I, 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 I don't Hates hate the, the guy, guy at all. But. No, no, I, I don't hate the guy. I don't dislike the guy. And I certainly am not standing on a lofty pulpit saying I'm perfect and he's the only one who's ever done anything wrong. Look, we've all got things that we wish we could do over. Absolutely. You know, uh, it was funny. Saturday before um, um,
4: I went out to a show, I was with Gord Forth, in owns Copetown Woods, and we were watching the Masters at his place. And um, somebody asked me if I was cheering for him. It was Suze or uh, his wife, Barb. And I said, yeah. I said, I- I'd like to see him pull it off because I – at my age now, I cheer for old guys, and it's nice to see old guys compete with the young guys. But should be cheering for Larry Mize, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or Gary Player. <laughs> but the reality is, he's good for business. Oh, he, he's great for business. He there are going to be more guys chomping at the bit. He is great for the golf business, and I got to take my hat off because I wasn't sure how it would unfold. A lot of his sponsors you couldn't find him with a search warrant, and I'm guessing the guy that that Nike that said we're not pulling the pin on him is a pretty happy guy right now because that Nike swoosh is back in vogue in the golf business. I, I heard on the radio this morning the Golf Town said that red um, shirt that he wore Sunday sold out sold online. Out. And so, you know what, it, it he's good for golf, he's good for the golf business, and it's a good news story. And, you know, the other thing, and I, I'm sure I've said it on, on the show before, but... Um, my, my friend, um, who was president of the Oilers at the time, I said, do you, do you quietly cheer for the Leafs if the Oilers aren't in? And LaForge said, Yes, because if the Toronto Maple Leafs win the Stanley Cup, it's good for the hockey business in Canada. It'll be good for the real McCoys, it'll be good for the junior teams, and it brings excitement in. Because, you know, uh, I'm 62, so I was a kid when they won their last Stanley Cup, but everybody had to cheer for either pretty much Montreal or Toronto before all these new teams come in. And those that want to laugh now because Edmonton's been in since the 70s. But, you know, there are a lot of people that only had those teams to cheer for. So they're they're Oilers fans, they're Flames fans. But, boy, it would be pretty exciting if Toronto actually... Won the Stanley Cup and be good for the hockey
0: business. I was not vitriolically or enthusiastically or exuberantly cheering against Tiger Woods. I simply found it odd that because he is now playing golf well, we overlook all the indiscretions and the other things before as if they never happened. I don't think. That's it. I don't think you have to. I, I, I
4: I'm a big believer in people being given a second chance, and he's he's done very well with his second chance. I mean, you know, he had. And it, <clears throat> an apparent addiction to uh, um, painkillers yep. and got caught in the highway that day and everybody's going, now he's really circling the drain. But, you know, to see his kids there, obviously he's, uh, that means a lot to him. And I I think some of his explanations after he was in all that doo do you kind of took with a grain of salt. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And, and talk's cheap. I, I think he's kind of walked the walk. I mean, I took a look at him. It's not like he's flabby, like he works hard oh, no, at no,
0: it. no, no, no. I, I would mm-hmm. happily. Uh, he's a
4: pretty proud guy, and he's not doing it for the money.
0: I would switch bodies with him right now. I'm sure your wife would let you. Well, it's, uh, look, I, again, it, it, is a, it is an exciting story. There's no question about the excitement. You hear the fans. I've been a couple of years ago when I was down at Augusta with Mackenzie, covering Mackenzie Hughes. Yeah. It is, he didn't play that year. Uh, tiger didn't because he was still injured at that point. It is a remarkable place for sure, and even then, the story that year was Sergio Garcia winning, who had never won before, had come close, and when he won, there was excitement, and there was a lot of noise and stuff. I never heard anything before like where the fans are chanting, Tiger, Tiger. It, it is he. There's no question he brings excitement to the game, and he brings money to the game, Back to the
4: WWE. Mm. I mean, he's made himself a hero. The uh, I again was uh, on my way to Buffalo yesterday afternoon, thinking that that's great. I'll be back around four o'clock, and I'll watch the last two and a half hours of the Masters. And not so much. The, the weather decided they start started at nine o'clock in the morning. So I listened to it on the radio, and I've never listened to golf on the radio before. But um, it was
0: golf it, on the radio. Is uh, I want to give credit to those guys. I think it's mostly guys. There's a few women, but the guys who do golf on the radio. There may not be a bigger challenge. Chess. <laughs> is there is there a serious satellite chess channel? Probably. <laughs> uh,
4: no, I, they got through it. at least you knew what was going on, but you, I, I had trouble
0: visualizing it, but it was uh, it's hard. but it was s-
4: information I was looking for and uh, you can't look at Twitter when you're driving down the QEW. so
0: no, I, again, I give credit. that is a hard thing to do radio golf. I, I don't know. It, you just it's very difficult to describe what you're looking at and have people understand. as far as I'm concerned, they could probably just get away with he's got a 10 foot putt. Oh, he missed. That, there's my description of it right there. And that's, that's probably covering it pretty much for... But the secret to it, you've got to do it in a British accent. You've got to whisper.
4: Well, it's not Tom and Jerry doing the World Series no, for the, the Jays. there
0: must be a whisper. <laughs> and, and you have to do it with the accent. And well, the, the uh, They come up with a few words. <laughs> oh, that was a brave effort. The golf commentators on the radio were cheering for him. Of course. And it was... The, on TV, too. There's no question they were. It Jim, was, was it Jim Nance or Larry? Jim Nance. Jim Nance, yeah. Larry Nance was the old basketball player. Uh, Jim Nance, he might have cried if Tiger didn't hold on to win that thing.
4: He uh, The the only guy that could have made it close on the 18th, he's going like he's got a 12-footer, and it was kind of like, yes, he missed. <laughs> it was <laughs> like, holy crap. His Assumably his, his, his family's not listening to the radio, but it's hard to get great glee. Like most of the time, they're looking for a
0: playoff. Yep, they just no. Uh, they didn't want. To they play wanted out. Tiger to win. And somebody, I, I heard someone t- say today, and I thought it was a really interesting point. And we're going to leave it after this. I uh, heard a really interesting point, and they said because of the weather that you alluded to, it could have in in drastic ways. It may have affected what happened because if it was not for that weather coming in, they don't play in threesomes at the end. They play in pairs. Yeah, and Tiger Woods would not have been in the last pair. Kepka would have been in the last pair. And so you would have then had Tiger Woods not knowing that he could shoot a five on 18 to win. He would have had to go yeah. for it in four as opposed to playing safe. And what happens if you, after that first shot where he gets off to the right and he's in trouble a little bit, what happens then? It, it, it is an interesting thing how this thing all worked out that played. I mean, he, he won it, but how this thing played to benefit him in certain ways.
4: The other thing I don't think uh, Tiger has that he used to have is if he's playing in the, the last group of two, which you're right, is traditional, and the guy's two strokes up on him, that stare on the first tee and the guy's going, I'm just going to give
0: it to him right now. Well, under- I don't think
4: he intimidates anymore. There's too many good oh, golfers. I don't
0: know. I, I think that... I didn't think that when it started, then it was over again. And maybe it's still there a little mm-hmm. bit, but it's not like it used to be. Molinari, is his name Molinari? Yeah. Molinari played perfect golf for three and a half rounds and you get into the back nine yeah. and two of them into the water. They crumpled. They crumpled. Uh, there's still some intimidation factor there well that's that's
4: when I was going maybe I'm not right, and then I realized that can't be the case
0: well, one way or another he is uh, he is definitely good for business and uh when he arrives at the Canadian open in June it's going to be uh, big big news. He's not coming I'm just saying that just to you know he'll come if they
4: pay, he'll come if they pay him and they might pay him this year
0: I don't think he comes no matter what because I mean what, what why would they pay him you've already they've already sold a ton of tickets they've done really really well what would we, he just won the masters he's tiger woods yeah but you can't sell more tickets you you can't it's not like you can say okay we're going to put another 80,000 tickets up you, for sale You and, don't
4: think the sponsors are interested in the TV ratings of tigers here
0: w- uh, yes a lot of money in TV yeah uh, well that you're right on that you're right on that and if they could and it's uh, always
4: about the money in sports
0: i it, think tell you what if if Tiger Woods announces that he is coming to the Canadian Open. All since Friday is already sold out, and there may be other days that are sold out. Friday is the day with uh, the country, uh, yeah. Florida, Georgia line. It's already sold out. You will. I've never seen this before at Hamilton for the Canadian Open. You will have scalpers. You will have people yeah. a block away selling those tickets for big, big, big money. If Tiger Woods somehow well, it, shows up, it, I, he's not showing up. I don't think he's showing up, but if he's already cut
4: a deal and and it, it he's got smart people around him. If he demands, and he can command it, an appearance fee, you better hope if you're the Canadian Open and you were contemplating that you agreed to that before you won the Masters because it just doubled.
0: Well, beyond that, what's an appearance fee for Tiger Woods now? million dollars. Oh, Tiger Woods doesn't blow his nose for a million dollars. Tiger Woods, has he's a billionaire, basically, or very close to it with all of his endorsements, even though he lost a bunch. He, Tiger Woods... I don't think he even contemplates coming for under 10. I, I, I Seriously, I, I would bet that it would be 10 million bucks before he would, unless it's a tournament that he really wants to play in. Yeah. If you want to lure him to an event that he's not interested in playing, maybe for 10 million bucks he starts paying attention. They're not paying him 10 million bucks to come here. I don't think so. You can stay at my house if he wants. Yeah. I got an extra room. It's not a big room might keep him out of trouble you can rent mine i'm not giving him anything
1: you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml
0: don robertson in studio brightest no this that's friday brightest conversation in hamilton radio today is dawn (laughs) sorry that sounded way more insulting than it was intended to Uh, Don Robertson of the Dundas Real McCoys of ComChoice Realty of a bunch of other things. He, I mean, he is every every Monday. He is the brightest conversation. Too late, on the radio. too I, late. I know. I'm trying. I'm digging fast. I'm I'm tap dancing while there's, I. There's there's a lot of people agreeing <laughs> with you, but it's still too late. Don, the Maple Leafs game three is on right now. Four nothing Toronto. Uh, not quite. Not yet. Sans Nazem Kadri, who's been suspended for the rest of this series, which is an interesting and kind of unusual suspension that they didn't give him an actual. Game number, just you can't play Boston again. So if it ends in five, your suspension was three games. If it was, if it goes seven, your suspension is five games. It's an interesting way of doing it. I, it's been done in the past. It's, uh, it's not a bad way to do it because really
4: we've talked about it in the past where you give a player a five-game suspension and it does the guy that uh, the team – that was uh, fouled against no no, no benefit at all
0: in the regular season so you're you're Montreal I'm Toronto yep i take a penalty against you that is a suspendable offense i knock out one of your players yep. you're without your player and now i don't my guy can't play, but it's not against you. You're not benefiting from when that.
4: You, and you've argued that point. The, yeah, the, I agree. The the the, 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 the suspended players should miss games against the uh, aggrieved
0: team. Right. So if it was that Toronto Montreal thing, and a Toronto player gets so suspended, you should be happy with this. Well, Montreal. Y- yes, I think this is the, It's an interesting way of doing it, but I think it's the right way of doing well,
4: it. You can only do it when it's at this point in the series. You can't do it when it's Game Six. No, 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 no. But like, it, if it should be a four or five game sus- suspension. And there's two games left. You can't do that. In this case, they got creative. and I
0: agree. I don't have any problem with this one
4: at all. He's probably lucky.
0: Uh, he's real lucky if it's only three games. He's got a history. Well, it's, he'll, he's lucky if it's three games, but they win. Because if they lose in the next three games in a row, there's going to be an awful lot of people pointing fingers at him. Again. Again. This year. Yeah. Here's the question, though, that I want to ask you about. and. and there's people who are listening. Some people listening have already, have the game on. Some have left to go watch. I understand that. It's a big game. But there are people who were watching on Saturday. It was a really physical game, a really rough game, that the referees basically said, you guys do what you want. We're not calling anything. And we've seen this before in the playoffs. For years we saw this in the playoffs. My question, Don, about this is, I think the NHL is the only league that says that we are going to play by two completely different sets of rules in the regular season and the playoffs. Is there is there another league? Is there another sport that does that? I can't think of one.
4: No, I don't think so. But I don't. But again, we're talking about the fastest and sometimes the most physical professional league in the
0: world. Oh, I, and I look. I, I love this. I love hard hitting mm-hmm. hockey. My question about it is simply that you build a team to play with the rules that the league puts into place. So the league says, you know what? We're going for speed. We're not gonna have fighting, at least not much of it. We're gonna do what we can. We're building, you're gonna be successful in our league based on the way we're gonna call penalties if you have a fast skill team. And then you get to the playoffs and they say, ah, never mind. That to me seems like you either go one way or go the other. It doesn't seem that you should be switching it up. I didn't see much of Saturday night's game. I was uh, watching
4: Divas in Ancaster. Um, <laughs> as a penance for something. <laughs> Although the show was quite lovely. Uh, but uh, I think based on the last 10 minutes that I saw and the reports that I've heard from people like you that, that saw it, l- Saturday Night's Game was a bit of an anomaly for letting that much go. And here, in fact, is what's wrong with that double standard. First of all, the intensity is... Amps up immensely in the playoffs because the consequences of losing are so huge that everybody plays harder. Mm-hmm. So I think it's not like baseball. The pitchers don't start throwing it at 115 miles an hour. But to use a, a baseball analogy, when you say the same rules all the time, you and I both know that there are umpires that are calling it three inches off the plate in one game and not the next game. So that's. At least you
0: probably know what the umpire's doing. But in but I don't know that they do that for playoffs. If they'd say, okay, now it's playoffs, therefore bigger strike zone or playoffs. No, that's the umpire's style. Role.
4: That's his style. But in the old days, when when Bobby Myers and, and Bruce Hood and uh, Brian Lewis were uh, refereeing the game, you could ask Scotty Morrison or Scotty Bowman and Don Sherry, all right, Myers is in the building. We know how he's going to referee the game because the league was smaller. It was more personalized, and there was only one official. Yep. So... The issue that I would take if I'm the the league and or the Toronto Maple Leafs is if you're going to change that dramatically in the playoffs, we have to know because the Toronto Maple Leafs are not built That's my point. to play that style of hockey. That's why I think it's a one-off. That's why, uh, as you mentioned before the show started, that there may be a prey to the penalty box because they may clamp down now, which is almost equally as bad unless because each, each series has a supervisor and they would have went and met with the coaches and say all right we the boys may have let it go a little crazy uh, the other night and i'm sure that's not the term they'd use but uh don't expect to have the game officiated like that again we're, we're, when it gets out of hand or if it looks like it is we're going to call the
0: penalties you you've been an official before yeah and the thing that always the, the the line that i always find interesting is that the officials will often say i don't want to impact the game i don't want to decide yeah. the game i want to let the players decide the game but if you let a call go that is, by the rules, a call, are you not deciding the game? You're not. So what you're doing is you're choosing which side you're going to let decide the game. If The rule is the rule. Call the rule, and then you're not deciding the game. Well, the players I mean, are deciding of, the game.
4: Of course that's the case. But if you read high-sticking in the rule book, now I haven't read it in a few years, obviously, but when I was a fishing, any player that carries the stick above the normal height of the shoulders will be assessed a two-minute high sticking penalty. Well, that's never been the case. If I jump over you or lift my stick high to get around you, it's not a high sticking penalty. So the rules are a bit ambiguous, if you will, to start with. But where you can get into deep doo-doo, and I'm telling you, I've had that feeling in the pit of my stomach, you can be in Dunville some night doing a junior B game, and you let one go, and then you let another one go, and, and each he, one builds on the one and before. And you're skating up the ice and you go, holy crap, now what's a penalty? Mm-hmm. Like somebody's going to have to die before I can call anything now. And, you know, I've had to go to the bench before and say, boys, look, at I've let them go, I'm going to rein them in now. Because it's your only way out and you got to warn them. So if you warn them, then you can start calling it. In the National Hockey League, it's a bit different. But when you let a couple questionable ones
0: go – and now you're not even sure what's the penalty? You're, that's the playoffs. But your point is 100% correct, that the rules can be ambiguous, that if you were to follow it to the absolute letter of the law, that it will be a parade to the penalty box that will never end. I get that. That is correct. However, the, the ambiguity is not different in the regular season, in the playoffs. All I'm saying is whatever your barometer is for a penalty in the regular season, if you suddenly say, well, in the playoffs, I don't want to decide the game, By saying, I'm not going to decide the game, you are deciding the game. What you've done is you take the skill players and you say, in the playoffs, you are no longer relevant here. We're going to let the muckers and grinders and bangers be the ones, because we're not going to call them on the kind of stuff that they got called on all year. Well, what Boston have is a combination of skill
4: and muckers, and their best players can play both. Yes. So it The playoffs in in this instance, and and by all accounts Saturday night, was tailor-made for the Boston Bruins. Now, we'll have to see what tonight brings us regarding how they play and what's called and what isn't called. The advantage I have when I'm coaching uh, the real McCoys, and I used to be a little more boisterous than I am now, and I've, I've calmed down a bit, but... The thing I say to the officials in our games when something gets let go on one of our guys in the offensive zone and we get the same thing called at the other end and guys are shaking their head, I mean, I don't yell and scream at them and call call them names and question their motherhood. I just wait till the next time they're in front of the bench at a whistle and say, you know, we judge you not on what you call but what you let go. And that's always a frightening thing for a referee because every time they make a call, it's clearly a penalty. But what you get judged on is are you letting the same thing go when you decide to let it go, right? And now you're not refereeing the game, you're managing the game. And when, when that comes from a bench and you start saying, you're going to referee this thing or manage it, we're judging you on what you don't call then they, then they really got to swallow hard and sort out of what they're going to do. We're blessed in our league to
0: have some of the best officials in Canada. So we don't get into it much, but it happens. See, I looked at the game on Saturday, and it's not about which team. But Yeah, the Bruins are built for it. The Leafs were hitting back every bit as hard. I mean, it was both ways. They were going nuts. But I thought, watching that game, I thought that game was too big for those officials they felt the pressure of that game or felt the magnitude or felt the moment or felt like I don't want to be calling penalty after penalty, and so they let it go at the beginning, as you say, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, I can't call that now because I just let four of those go beforehand. You know what makes it a bigger challenge, Scott, now,
4: is uh, when I refer to the Bobby Myers and the Brian Lewises of the world, they, they ran the game themselves. So now I'm watching you, if there's two of us out there, and I'm watching you let something go, and I'm thinking, well, that's your call. You're five feet from it. Now, I basically can't make that same call at the other end of the rink. So it becomes a larger challenge with uh, the two referee system because
0: you don't have one mind you've got, two. Well, let me say one other <laughs> thing. we got to go to a break. Let me say one other thing. There was a time you mentioned those guys' names. Uh, there was a time when you had Bob Myers or Bill Friday or whomever else. You knew who that ref was. So if they make a big call or don't make a big call, those guys are on the hook for it. I mean, Bob Myers will forever be remembered, even though it's not a fair thing because he didn't make the call for the Don Cherry too many men on the ice penalty. He was the ref. The linesman called it, but because he was the ref, he is forever the guy who was the ref for that call, the one that's the famous one that you see on Coach's Corner. I don't know if they still use that clip. The fact is, though, today, could you name five NHL refs? Do you want to know the story?
4: No, I can't. Do you want to know the story? Oh, I can actually. Do you want to know the story behind that? Uh, and 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 grapes knows the truth because grapes and I've had a cup of tea talking about it. <coughs> Pardon me. Is uh, Myers goes by John D'Amico who made the call. And there were six Bruins on the ice. Next thing you know, the whistle goes. And uh, uh, as as the story as, as I heard it was told is. What are you doing? He said, there was seven of them out here. (laughs) You asked Grace. I said that to Grace one night, and he said, well, there was a lot more than there was supposed to be. (laughs) So he's never, ever dumped on Myers for it because I think Bob was fine if there was six, and I guess D'Amico said, all right, they're really pushing
0: Now there's an extra one out here. But you knew. So those guys, if there was a call, they were forever the guy who was the ref, and you knew who it was. (laughs) And maybe we've forgotten now a lot of them 20, 30, 40 years later, but for a while, that would be their... Their legacy. Remember in Vancouver with the towel? The towel, yep. You know who was refereeing that night? Brian Lewis? Bob Myers. Was he? Again? Yep. Man. Busy guy from Cope Town. No wonder he decided to start an apple orchard. <laughs> and just go into the cider business. It's a whole lot easier.
1: <laughs> You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: In studio with Don Robertson. Uh, Don, I don't know if you saw this. Don't know if you caught the highlights or saw any of the Women's World Hockey Championship yesterday, the final between Finland and the United States. First of all, it was a shock that Canada was not in the final. They had been beaten out by Finland. Then in the overtime, Finland wins the game. They win the championship in overtime. Sudden death overtime, score the golden goal. Helmets go flying, gloves go flying, sticks go flying, big pile on. It's in Finland, so the play, the arena's going nuts. They then go to the video review... And after 10 minutes of looking at the video, wave off the goal. And the Americans win in overtime. But the thing was, they said it was goalie interference. Now the goalie made a save, didn't control it, lunged for the puck out. Now she is completely outside the blue ice. As the Finnish player goes to skate by, the American goalie grabs her ankle and takes her down. The ref's hand goes up. So the the American goalie is going to get a penalty. And the Finnish player gets the puck and shoots it in the net, and they say that it was goalie interference. And the only reason I bring this up is not, it, it was well, twofold. One is, it's amazing to me that when you finally, I mean, we want Canada to win all the time, but when you finally get an opportunity to do something in women's hockey that will really grow the game internationally, you find a way to screw it up with a call that I haven't seen a person yet who has said, yeah, that was goalie interference. But the second part is, and this is not a ref thing, because the ref on the ice called it correctly. How does nobody, after all this time, in any level of hockey, men's, women's, pro, amateur, how does nobody still know what goalie interference is? Because nobody does. No. Nobody really knows what goalie interference is. Well, I do. You think
4: you do. No, I do. Because if a forward goes through the crease and puts his ass into the goalie and knocks him out of the net, that's goaltender interference. I know that. Probably. The, the, Probably. The the difficulty in judging it is, did the defenseman put him in? Did he embellish going into that's, it?
0: That's my question. So, while so I think- the
4: easy one I know, and so does everybody else. It's the it's the complications that they bring into it that the, and interpretation. Like, when was the championship game? Sunday morning? Sunday. I yep. think I wasn't watching the Masters, but it I was said? on
0: after, right after the Masters, I believe. Oh, was it? Yeah. So, but it was, but it was the problem with the call. As I'm looking at this, and and apparently everyone else too. I mean, even the the commentators were like, "What? What of a nicely Finland winner, right? I mean, that would have she been was completely out perfect. of the crease. She was out of the crease, and she lunged into the path of the skater. So the skater didn't go out of her way to run into the goalie. The puck was there. The goalie lunges to get it into the path of the skates of the player. The goalie was getting a penalty. How do you know the goalie was getting? Because the ref's arm immediately went up, and then after it was waved off, the Americans were in the penalty box. Oh, so holy crap! Yeah, it, even it, the problem is even your example where you skate through the crease and stick your bum into the goalie. When I say maybe or probably, you get a goalie interference penalty, not necessarily. Because again, you could say, "Oh no, that person nicked the player who was backing up and knocked him or her a little bit off balance."
4: Well, I was talking about a clear-cut one, but I understand what you're saying.
0: This is one of those rules that I don't know what hockey is supposed to do with it, but it's the it has become the biggest headache rule of all. Second would be the offside by a quarter of a millimeter rule. When they go, Here's, here is my suggestion for how you do this stuff. You decide? No. No, no. I, I think it's not a difficult thing and it's not a, a complicated thing whatsoever. If you want to look at goal interference, offside, all of these things in hockey, you can look, the refs can go over to the box and they can look at the iPad and everything, but it has to be in real time. And if you notice that in real time yeah. there is something egregious that you didn't see because you were blocked out or whatever else, That's fine, because remember, do you remember why the offside replay rule came into effect? No. Because two years ago, three years ago, Colorado scored a goal where the linesman somehow, the guy was so offside that the linesman didn't even see him. Because he's looking at the line. Yeah, so the the guy guy was so deep. He was so deep. He was 15 or 20 feet into the end. He was so deep in that he never saw him. And they scored a goal.
4: Referee should have blew the whistle. but anyway. I understand.
0: But it, So then that's why the rule came in. And now, though, it's been completely abused. But under your theory, like the theory of uh, instant replay is so that nobody wins a game that should win a game. Let's make sure we get this right. But what is right? Because the, so many of these the call. rules. Yeah, but so many of these rules now, as you say, have interpretations and complications. And they it, it's not an objective standard it's not an objective standard
4: but 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 your idea of watching it in real time which is obviously no triple slow mo you may not know but which i'm okay with i think they can throw they can throw the instant replay out of the game as far as i'm concerned but if you're going to use it
0: you should use it to make sure you got it right and i would First of all, I hate instant replay with a passion, as you know. But the problem with the instant replay is not just that it slows the game down, not just that it screws things up. It's that so many rules are judgment calls, not objective standard calls. But the offside isn't. It's, it's, the offside isn't. Again, though, I don't think that that rule was ever intended to be for a quarter of a millimeter offside or not. If you, if you leave it to the ref, you're paying refs a good salary because they're good referees. And you let them, and linesmen, you let them call the game, and if they want to see it again, if, if the guy says, oh, he was way offside, sh- sure, we'll watch this again, we'll watch it in real time, and if he really was way offside, we'll be able to see it in real time, and we'll call that goal off. If it's, and the goalie interference thing, when you slow it down, you can see goalie interference on every single play if you want to slow it down to triple three times super slow-mo. I'll tell you
4: one thing that hasn't changed. The first referee school I went to, I was uh, it was uh, 40, 47 years ago. and Because I've been refereeing minor hockey and everything else, and I'm thinking might be something I want to do. In every referee school, the analogy for offsides was almost, it's like being pregnant. You either are or you aren't. You can't be a little bit pregnant. You can trip a guy a little bit. You can ice it, and it may be a questionable call. But offside is like being pregnant. You can't be a little bit. So it's either offside or it's not. That's the one that's black and white. Goaltender interference isn't. High sticking isn't. Offsides are. And the puck has to be completely across the goal line. Those are the only two definitive
0: things in the game that matter that aren't judgment calls. So, okay, so let's, let's then say you're the NHL and you say, even though I hate the offside thing, let's say you say, okay, goal across, puck across the goal line and offside. They are absolutely not judgment calls. They are objective standards. We're going to have replay for them. Why then do you not bring in replay for all the other objective calls? So that, for example, right now the rule is that if you're offside and the puck hasn't cleared the zone yet, it could be five minutes later and you can go back and see because that was the play that came into the offside that we can go back and review it. Why not say it's objective? It's an objective standard that, be- for it not to be icing, the puck has to touch the red line. And yet, all the time you see guys skating down, they get close to center ice and they shoot it in, but it may not have quite got to center. But that why That's not? Like, uh, why not say if we if the puck doesn't come back across center, you can go and review that, and that could be an icing call. That's an objective standard. Yeah, uh, you're right. You're right. There's and there's uh, there's a hundred. of It almost them. paints a
4: picture that I could have been wrong there, but the no, but, but the icing, but the icing is kind of like. Which they've cleaned up in baseball. The neighborhood play at second base. If you kind of look like you're dragging your toe within two feet of second base for the double play, and the icing call, I can tell you when it's six one, at om- at our level and up, isn't the same as if it's two two. And I, because I scream at the guys if we're up six one. Let it go.
0: I don't want to see another icing call, boys. We're going to go with pizza and tea. I, the NHL and other sports have made their instant replay, and this goes back to the Women's World Hockey Championship, so ridiculous, so indecipherable, such a mess, that you end up with this situation where the IHF, the International Ice Hockey, yeah. Hockey Federation, takes the moment that probably was the gold standard for the rest of the world. You have hope that you can beat Canada or the U.S. And, and somebody beats them both, and they take it away from them. And they ruin it. For what was a good goal, and someone in a box in a booth somewhere goes, ah, I don't know. There was a teeny tiny itsy bitsy teeny bit of contact there. No goal. Mm, stupid. Yeah, but the the Russian player was in the box. Uh, right? No, no, no. Not at no, the time no. this happened. No, no. You said after the call. Well, after the call, the American player had a penalty because the or goalie, the, the American the player rather. Player. Yeah. 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 <sighs> Doesn't make any sense to me. It seems stupid, but anyway. Who are we to know why people do these things? We'll fix it when we take over. When Gary Bettman leaves and we become in charge.
4: I'll guarantee he's not watching hockey. He's
0: listening to this. Uh, The playoffs are on tonight. I'm not sure Gary Bettman's watching hockey anyway. (laughs) Downton Abbey's on. Don Robertson, thanks as always for coming in. It was fun. Go Leafs.
1: The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.